Alright guys, it is 6.30, so I'm going to steal you back for the, uh, the final time of our semester together. If you, if you missed the memo, I know I said this last week, and, and we've been talking about this from the beginning, and you've been following along in your books, but uh, uh, Genesis we're taking in two parts, and uh, this fall we've done the first part, and it concludes today. So, so 10 weeks, uh, this is the 10th week, good job making it to the very end, guys, proud of you for being here. Um, and uh, for everybody who missed and you're listening to the podcast, shame on you. Um, uh, no, just kidding. We get, we get it. Uh, glad, glad you're listening. Glad you're keeping up with us. Um, but I, I do. I do hope you've enjoyed yourself. I hope that you've learned a lot. Uh, I feel like this has been a phenomenal uh, study myself, just sort of in the, the ways that I have understood Genesis in a deeper way than I ever have before. I love Genesis. I always have. Um, but I've never studied it this deeply before, and, and I think... That habit uh, of digging in deep, even in order to teach, has been really fruitful in my own life. I hope it's been fruitful for you guys. Um, I hope, you know, we have two goals when we start off. One of them is that you develop some healthy habits of studying Scripture. I hope that's been true. I hope you've built a rhythm in your life on a weekly basis of of, uh, drinking up the Word and uh, soaking up those nutrients like like a tree planted by water that you're, you know, putting on rings. Remember what we talked about the first week. Maturity is slow. Uh, it doesn't come all at once, but the consistency, the habit, the diligence to every day seek the Lord, see what He's saying in His Word, and, and uh, draw up truth from it. Uh, it slowly keeps you nourished. It, it, your, your leaves are green. You're not withering. Um, you can survive the storms. You can survive the heat that comes in this life. And, and slowly but surely, you're putting on rings, and eventually you're this strong, mature oak that can't be toppled by anything. So keep it up. Don't stop. I know we're stopping our regular meetings, and you're not going to have a little notebook to, to guide you through things every day, but please don't stop reading the Bible. I hope that these habits will be uh, something you continue to do and, and dig into. If you need help and need ideas on other things to study, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'd be glad to, to point you to some good resources. But, but also know this is enough. Like, pick a book, choose a passage, study it, get in there every single day. The, the same, these questions that you've been having asked of you that you've been answering, slowly but surely, like Mr. Miyagi, it's teaching you how to think about passages. It's teaching you how to, how to ask some questions yourself. So grab a journal. Uh, study God's Word. Hope that'll continue. Um, and I also hope you've, you know, our other goal was that you develop some friendships. I hope you have. I hope at these tables you've, you've made a new friend or two. Um, keep those going. You know, we need each other. The Bible is so clear on that. Community is such a rich part of our, uh, of our walk with Christ, of our walking with God. So uh, don't neglect those. You know, we may not be getting together at 6 a.m., but uh, invite people to Waffle House. Go, go find a way to still, still keep together. Um, but from here, we will pause for the holidays. Uh, we're not going to meet next week or any of December. Um, we'll kick things back off in February. February the 7th is when uh, the second part, Genesis, God of Covenant, will kick off. Um, if you want to register early, there's a QR code for it. We won't start announcing that until January. Um, but uh, you're not obligated to participate in that. If, if this has been boring and you're done with it, uh, you're, you're welcome to hop off the ship at this point. Um, but if you want to continue, make sure to sign up as we start announcing things and we'll uh, get you back at tables and, and dive back in in the new year. But um, And one more thing before I pray and, and sort of dive into our text today, but I just want to say thank you to the leaders who led the tables this year. If we can all say a word of appreciation. Keeping all you people on track is not the easiest task in the world, but uh, appreciate your faithfulness and your, your willingness to invest um, for these, these 10 weeks. Um, with that, let me pray for us. God, we do come to you once again and just ask you to lead our time. Uh, we are so needy. If Genesis has taught me anything, it is how 
prone I can be to wander, how prone I can be to forget who you are and, and step back towards sin and step back towards uh, sinful patterns. And, and, and uh, we need you, Lord. We need you to intervene in our life. And, and so um, in that truth, Lord, we come right now and we just ask you to do just that. Lord, we need you. We need you to speak to us. We need words from heaven. That's our daily bread. So would you nourish our souls as we uh, contemplate this passage one more time together? And um, Lord, as we, as we conclude, would the good things you've started here not just end? Would it not just drop off? Would Satan's schemes to, to get us out of the Word and out of community, would, would, they, would they fail? Lord, would you help us to be diligent men who um, exert dominion to build spiritual health in our lives and in our families um, uh, in an ongoing way, well past when Men of the Word is over? So uh, lead us, guide us. Um, the training wheels come off. Lord, help us to, to stay strong. Uh, it's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, for the sake of time, I am going to skip the theme overview and hopefully come back to it at the end. If not, I'll do what I've done before. I'll, I'll record something in my office and throw it on the end of the podcast. But, um, but we got a, a good bit to cover here. Two full chapters of, of content that you studied this week, which just get ready. That's going to be the pace in part two of Genesis. Uh, Genesis is 50 chapters long, and we've done 10 weeks on 11 chapters. So just ready yourselves. It's, a, it's about a three-chapter-a-week pace in the new semester. Really good stuff um, uh, in store for us. But, uh, but this week we got a taste of that for sure. A lot of content in these uh, in these chapters. Um, and it's basically, if you notice, it's basically two very long genealogies that sandwich this story of the Tower of Babel. Um, so, you know, what, what's in the genealogies? What can be valuable there? I think there's a few things. Um, the Tower of Babel for sure has a lot of interesting things as well. But let's get into it. Chapter 10, if you have your, if you have your text, if you want to follow along as I go through, it might be fruitful for you. So chapter 10 is the first genealogy. It's what's known as uh, the Table of Nations. I'm not sure if you've heard that term before, but uh, the reason we, we call it that is because uh, this is the moment when we see the nations being born. Um, you know, from, from Noah, one family came all the nations of the earth. Um, after the flood, it's just him and his three sons and their wives that are, that are alive, those eight people uh, on the ark. And this chapter is what tells us of their descendants. We get the full lineage of Noah's three sons playing out. The, uh, the first son, uh, or, or Japheth, is the one that's focused on first. We're not sure which one was born first. Um, but verses 2 through 5 cover him. Then verses 6 through 20 focus on Ham and all of Ham's descendants. Um, verses 21 through 31 focus on Shem. How many of you noticed some interesting nation names as you were reading this? Uh, yeah, me too. Uh, and, and some interesting city names. I actually think that uh, the, the study did a good job of like helping you track like how they spread. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing them fulfill the mandate God has given them, which is to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. That's what's playing out in, in just a few generations there. They're multiplying rapidly. Uh, all of these sons are becoming full-on clans and nations with, uh, with, with uh, lands that they're in control of. They're spreading out. Um, who goes north into Europe? Does anybody remember that? Japheth and his family sort of settles north, starts spreading that way. Who stays in the center? Shem. Shem and his descendants. That's where the line of Israel will eventually come out of. And then Ham, which what direction does he go? He goes south into Africa, into Egypt. Um, and it's not a pure division that way. I mean, you have some overlap, but, um, but I just thought that was so fascinating. But then comes chapter 11, when we realize that the reason they were spreading wasn't because they were being obedient to God's command of them to go and fill the earth, 
but rather it was a, a judgment. It was a, a consequence of their, of their failure. Um, we have here the story of the Tower of Babel, which chronologically, it's not immediately after chapter 10. It fits somewhere in the midst of it. Um, that's clear from, from the text. The, the study brought that out this week. Um, you know, when, when chapter 10 is playing out, uh, at some point they are still all together, and then Babel happens and, and they spread out, and, and that's what chapter 11 is all, all there for. It's telling the story of how and why they ended up spreading out. So what happened? How did this play out? Well, it starts with Nimrod. You saw that in chapter 10. We've we got to kind of put together 10 and 11 to see this story. He was the son of Cush, who is the son of Ham, one of the Hamites. Um, and he, we're told he was a mighty man, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, chapter 10, verse 8 and 9 says, he decides to establish a city. And at first glance, I'm not sure if you noticed this, at first glance, this brother seems kind of awesome, right? Like he has an unfortunate name, Nimrod. But beyond that, he's He's pretty impressive. Like in many ways, I really do think that he epitomizes what God intended for mankind to do when it came to the dominion mandate. I mean, this dude is just totally exerting dominion over the earth in incredible ways. He's a hunter. And not just a hunter, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's, that's impressive. I mean, this is a good thing. God told uh, mankind after the flood that the animals were given to be eaten, uh, to be enjoyed, and hunting is an expression of using God's creation and bringing it about for human flourishing to, to feed his family. So this guy is, is a great hunter. Uh, we're also told he's a builder. He set out to build cities. Uh, Babel is the first one that we're told, but it goes on. If you look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 10, he goes on to f- uh, f- found seven other cities, eight cities in total this guy built in his life. That's incredible. Um, and not just that, he's also an engineer, uh, or at least he led engineers or, or created a society where engineers could come about. In chapter 11, verse 3, as Babel is being built, we're told the reason it gets built, the reason these walls, the reason this city sort of comes together and this tower gets built is because they figured out how to make bricks in a really strong way. They burn them thoroughly, so they're very strong and can support more weight. They uh, come up with this bitumen that's able to be the, the mortar between the bricks. I mean, this is like Thought. This is dominion, guys. This is technology and invention. Mankind exerting uh, the dominion God's given them over the earth to create and to uh, advance things. I mean, in, in many ways, it really does appear that Nimrod was a, was a great leader, uh, causing there to be flourishing under his leadership. Uh, then comes the problem, right? Uh, it all looks good until you get to verse 4. Look with me, if you will. Uh, then they said, the people under his leadership, the people in the city, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's wrong here, guys? Well, God was very clear, very clear with his people that they were to fill the earth and multiply. They were not to stay put. They were not to stay settled in one place. They were to disperse. And as they dispersed, they would carry his name everywhere. They would carry the worship of God, the glory of God all over the earth, that the, the glory of God would fill the earth as the, as the waters covered the sea. This was the design of God from the beginning, and yet here they decide uh, that they would rather stay put. They'd rather settle down. They'd rather stay in one place. They'd rather not focus on the glory of God, but focus on glorifying themselves, making their name great. They take all that dominion that God's given them, and rather than ex- using it to express glory to God, what do they do? They bend it in on themselves in order to glorify their own names. We don't want to go. We want to stay put. We don't want to make a name for you. We want to make a name for ourselves. Let's build a great tower. Let's slap our name on the top of it, and let's scream out our glory to everyone who will listen. 
This is what is playing out here. That's the sin at hand. And family, it's the sin of pride. It's unbridled, sinful <laughs> ambition. It's taking that good thing God created in you, that drive to create, that drive to do great things and accomplish great things, that He created for, your, for His glory, and corrupting it and bending it in on yourselves, setting yourself up as a rival to God to live for your own glory rather than His. And brothers, I think this is a, a big thing that we got to take a moment to look at because I think this is a temptation for all men. Like this is a place where we're all prone to struggle. Satan's best tool is to corrupt good things that God's created. God's a creator, Satan's a corrupter. He uses the good things that God's made for our good, for human flourishing, for his glory, and he, he just sort of steps in there and ruins them, twists them, corrupts them, and, and we're prone to do this. We're tempted. All of us are tempted to find our worth, to find our value, to find our meaning in the glory of ourselves rather than in the glory of the Lord. And I think this can show up in a lot of different places. Some of the common ones, career. Like we can be prone to bend all of our life towards success in our vocation. Go get that promotion. Go get that bonus. Go accomplish great things. Have other people want to be you and, and, and feel your, uh, have your position and have your role. I mean, that's just, it can be this, this shadow crouching in your heart. Sinful ambition. It's pride. I think it also shows up at home, you know, looking to our kids and to their success for our glory, wanting our kids to accomplish great things, you know, wanting them to be the best uh, athlete on the ball field. I uh, want them to have, be on the travel teams and get a chance to, to make it pro, you know, wanting our, our uh, kids to be great at school and succeed in everything they do. Because in some ways, we find our own glory threatened if they don't do well. I think it also shows up in finances, you know, saving incessantly, investing all the money, trying to make it grow, refusing to be generous and care for people's needs, refusing to give to God's ministry and to the church. I mean, having just a, a competitive spirit that maybe nobody even sees, but you're just always living out your life to build up that 401k, build up those accounts, build up your glory. And honestly, with men, I think it can be anything right? Like sports, video games. You can ruin a friendship over a game of ping pong. Like we just get competitive over the silliest things, right? Because we, we have this thing in us and Satan meets us there with his temptations and we turn it into this very corruptive reality. How many of you know people who are ultra competitive? How many of you are ultra competitive, right? This is true. In every, every single case, it's the same thing. It's pride that seeks, just like here in Babel, seeks to make our name great. It's sinful ambition bent in on itself, uh, and it's wrong. And it leads us to our first point for today. God calls us to lives of holy ambition for His glory. God calls us to lives of holy ambition for His glory. What we're seeing here in Genesis 11 is absolutely a temptation of every man's heart in this fallen world to exert God's blessings on us for ourselves, to take the dominion He's given us and to build towers with our name on it, and this passage is meant to warn us. Like what's playing out in Babel is meant to turn us back from this failure. Ambition is not a bad thing, men. It's not a bad thing to have drive and to have a desire for success. But God's given you that, that motivational factory for His glory. You are supposed to sweat and to work and to create and to build. But you're supposed to do that in line with God's commands, with God's purposes, with God's mission. Scripture calls us to a holier path than sinful ambition. It calls us to holy ambition. Um, and here in Genesis 11, we're only really seeing the problem. We're not really advised on what holy ambition looks like. So I just want to real quickly step back from Genesis and give you three characteristics. These are not uh, limited 
there, there's a whole lot more that could define what holy ambition looks like in our lives. Um, but I'm going to show you three passages and give you three characteristics of what holy ambition should look like in your life at least. Uh, first one, holy ambition is humble. It's humble. God-glorifying ambition is a selfless, humble ambition. This comes from Philippians chapter 2 where Paul writes these words, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Brothers, true holy ambition, like exerted the way God desires, is a humble ambition. It looks to the needs of others. It considers others better than yourself. It points that drive to help them, to serve them, to look after their interests, not your own. Uh, Does that play out in your workplace? Are you humble in the way that you uh, exert ambition and dominion towards towards goals, or or are you very prideful? Second thing, it's, it's repentant. Uh, this is interesting. I, I was trying to find a word to explain this, but what I mean by repentant is that it, it stares at the cross. Uh, and it's an ambition that rests in the finished work of Jesus that He's accomplished for us on the cross, and therefore it doesn't boast in self. It knows that all I have to boast in if I'm boasting in myself is my sin. I'm sinfully corrupted. It sees that. So it boasts in Christ. It boasts in the cross. Uh, I see this in Galatians chapter 6, also Paul. But he says these words, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, it's a repentant ambition. It, it, it rests in the gospel. It looks to Jesus for anything worth boasting about. And, and third thing here, it's missional. It's an ambition that aims to see others be repentant and trust in Jesus. It's an ambition to see the gospel go to the edges of the earth. An, an ambition to see people come to saving faith. A, a motivational drive to not just accomplish great things in this world that the world thinks are great, but accomplish the great things that God thinks are great. Uh, and I think Paul gave us a great example of this in Romans 15. Uh, this is near the end of his life, but he, he writing to Rome, he, he tells them his goal is actually to come to Rome, but he really wants to go to Spain. I'm not sure if you've ever read this in the, at the end of, of, of Romans, but Paul's goal at the end of his life was to get the gospel to the place where it had not yet gone, which was Spain. Nobody was a believer in Spain yet. And he's just... Got this ambition. He actually says it that way. Romans 15, verse 20 says this. I make it, Paul writing, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard of him will understand. He took all that drive, all that motivation, all that energy that God's given him, and he pointed it towards making sure people who had never heard the name Jesus could hear it. Like, what a godly thing. What if God would have you be successful in all that drive you have that you're right now pointing at finances, your career, whatever? What if, what if He wants you to move to Papua New Guinea? What if He wants you to give the next four decades of your life to seeing people who have no clue who Jesus is come to know faith? I mean, that's holy ambition, guys. It's, it's missional. So just a, just a few ideas there, but wanted to give you a better way than what we see here in Babel. What's playing out in Babel, what's playing out with Nimrod is a terrible example, and God's warning us and calling us to something different. So let's keep going. we got more here. Uh, second point is right there. I'll, I'll, let, me, let me tee it up for you. Um, after all this unholy ambition in verse 4 is mentioned, uh, in verse 5 we see God beginning to respond, and I think his, respond is, his response is one of disruption and restraining of the sin that is, is playing out here. So uh, verse 5 says this, um, you know, the guys in verse 4 are saying, we're going to build this great city, uh, glorify our names, um, 
And then verse 5, Moses writes, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. I just love, I love that sentence. I think Moses is being intentionally humorous. This great tower, the best that mankind can offer, God has to come down to even see it. He can't see it from where he is. He's got a, he's, you know, like a dad having to bend down to see like your, your kid's little Lego blocks tower. That's the imagery at play here. And it's meant to show us that our ambition is never a threat to God. Like we may think we're setting ourselves as rivals to him, um, but no matter how high these guys built their tower, they were no nearer to God than they were on the ground. Like there was no spiritual ascent here in this work. Uh, our very best as creatures is still infinitesimally small before an infinite God. Um, yet, seeing what this unbridled ambition would do in a unified community, God decides to act. He, he says this is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for this. And seeing this, he intervenes and restrain sin. Um, and I think this is an act of mercy. Somehow, I, I don't know if you were this way. When I first read this as a kid, when this was taught to me as a kid, my assumption was that like these guys were actually a threat to God. And so God's confusing of their language, them separating them, was like him protecting himself and, and not letting them reach him. Um, that is not at all what's playing out here in, in Genesis when you read it clearly. Uh, God's act of, of intervention here is not to protect himself. It's to protect mankind. He sees what unbridled ambition, sinful ambition built in on, on itself, dominion exerted towards self-glory when everyone's unified together, he sees where that ends, and it's bad. That ends in sinful wickedness that a, you know another flood is going to be necessary. So, And he's promised, I'll never flood the earth again. So he's, he's intervening here and confusing their language and dispersing them. Why? Because of his mercy. He is restraining sin. He's disrupting a cycle of sin that will result in great harm. And, and allowing there to be mercy that, that keeps it restrained. God sees where this path of sinful, sinfulness in their hearts will lead, and he intervenes to disrupt it. Um, in fact, I think that the, the confusion they experience is mercy, and the diversity of language on the earth today is a monument to God's mercy. It's an it's a eternal monument to the sinfulness of man and the, and the mercy of God. And, and this is who he is. He intervenes in grace and mercy in our sin patterns to keep it from going too far. I, I, I see this all over the Bible. Think about King David. You know, he's falling into this pit of lust. He's, he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's committed murder of, of her husband Uriah. I don't know where that ends in his life. I don't know if he sees another woman he wants and he goes and re- repeats this again and again and again. God knows. He sees what happens with our unbridled sin. So what does God do? He sends Nathan the prophet. He confronts David. He brings him to repentance. You see it with Israel uh, in, in the middle of the age of the prophets, when they're you know, so idolatrous with the prophets of Baal, King Ahab, his wife Jezebel, were leading Israel into a terrible way, and God does what? He sends uh, Elijah, the prophet, to confront them, to intervene, to disrupt it. Showdown on Mount Carmel, this beautiful moment when God does the same thing he's doing here. Uh, I also see it in the New Testament, when Saul is ravaging the church and persecuting Christians, murdering Christians, Christ shows up on the road with a blinding light and changes his life. And my point to you all men is this our God is a merciful God who does this to us as well like just for a second think about where you might be if God had not done this at some point in your life I mean truly if, if God would just leave you to your own devices and let sin go unrestrained in your life where, where have you seen him be merciful in this way where you where might you be if he doesn't do this again today in your life 
I mean, we need this. We need the mercy of God. I, I think we're meant to be uh, living our lives in a posture of thankfulness to God for his mercy of restraint towards sin, uh, his willingness to disrupt our patterns and keep us from falling away. Um, you know, Romans chapter 1 talks about what happens when God, he, he's not always this way. He's slow to anger. He is patient with us, but there is an end to that. And Romans 1 talks about when, when these idolaters that are uh, you know, trading the, the worship of God for worshiping creators, it says God gave them over to the lust of their heart. There comes a moment when God stops restraining in our lives, where He lets us go our own way. That's a scary thought. I mean, it really is. So our response should not be in the midst of our sin, even if you today, if you're like, oh yeah, God's protecting me from going too bad. Don't, that's a dangerous game to play out. Don't, don't walk that path limitlessly, men. Our response shouldn't be to, uh, to harden ourselves in sin when we see God's mercy this way. It should be to come to repentance. It's God's kindness towards us that's meant to lead us to repentance, Romans 2 says. So um, this is who God is. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing on display here. God restraining sin. Uh, so let's keep going. We've got one more point here. Uh, one more note on this part. Notice, um, if, you, if you're still looking at chapter 11, look at verse 9. At the end, they're all dispersed on the face of the earth, which is what God always wanted, right? But did they, were they that way because God was blessing them and because they were being obedient? No. God, here's my point. God, God can do whatever He wants. He will accomplish His purposes with you or without you. Better to be with Him, right? Better to stand under His blessing. So, uh, number three here, though. The third and final point. God is unfolding a glorious plan of redemption. Um, We've got to end on the cross. Got to end on Jesus. Um, because I do see the rest of chapter 11 pointing to him. So um, amidst all this sinful ambition, amidst all this unholy uh, pride that's playing out in Babel, God still sets his heart on his people to bring about a glorious plan of redemption for them. You know, in Genesis so far, every story of sin, and there's been a lot, has ended with a glimmer of hope. Adam and Eve in the garden ends with them uh, getting clothed in, in animal sacrifices, getting covered with God's provision for them, with this promise of one day there'll be a snake crusher who's coming. You know? So ends with hope. Uh, story of Cain in Genesis 4, it ends with hope. Uh, he gets marked by God so he's protected, so that vengeance doesn't fall on him even as he departs from his family into the wilderness. Uh, the flood story, same thing. Even though this massive destruction ends with hope, there's a rainbow, there's a covenant. God's not going to do this destruction again. This is the first time where there's no hope. When Babel ends, it's just dark. The, the people are spread over the face of the earth, but there's no, uh, there's no glimmer of like how, how does this fix itself until you get to the final genealogy. I think this is where the hope is um, as you build this, this story from Shem forward. So the final genealogy, it follows the line of Shem. It's very similar, if you remember, to the, gene- the genealogy we saw in Genesis chapter 5. It's very quick. It's not giving all the children just the first child of each son. Uh, or the first son of each father going down through. And, and in Genesis chapter 5, there were 10 generations mentioned that got to uh, Noah, who had three sons. And in this one as well, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but there's 10 generations mentioned that, that brings us to uh, Terah, and he has three sons. And we saw in the first one, there's one son, Shem, who is going to be blessed. God's, uh, Noah pours out blessing on him. We see that the line of promise is following through, through uh, Shem. And so the question, as you end, as, as Moses' uh, audience would have read this, the question they would have as they fi- finish this up is, which of these three is it going to be? You've got Ab- Abram, you've got Nahor, you've got Haran. Which one is the line of promise going to follow through? We've seen one father, one son, one father, one son, one father, one son. Now we have three. 
How is, how is God's blessing going to still come through in the midst of this dispersion and all that? Well, spoiler alert, it's Abram. This is, this is Abraham. And as Genesis 11 concludes, think about what comes next. Genesis 12. And if you study the scripture, immediately in Genesis 12 is the calling of Abraham and the blessing of God upon him. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and through you all the nations will be blessed. Right now, what, what is playing out at the end of 11? A lot of nations, a lot of dispersion, but no blessing anywhere. It's dark. They've been spread because of a curse. They've been spread because of their sin. But now in the midst of it, we're going to see God begin to once again bring about His redemptive plan. I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless everyone. This is, this is a, a, a glorious plan that is coming. Now, granted, it may be much slower than we might want. He has a, he has a great plan of redemption. We wish it would happen faster, right? Like Eve wanted it to, when she heard that there was going to be a snake crusher, she wanted it to be Cain. She wanted it to be Shem or, or uh, Seth. And it didn't come. Lamech, he wanted it to be Noah, his son, and it didn't come. You know, ten generations after Shem, it still hasn't showed up. There's been a lot of generations, and this promise of a snake crusher, still ha- the redemption from sin, has still not shown up. It, God's plan is slower than we would want, and it's also more confusing than we might expect. Um, because notice what we're told about Abraham right here, or Abram right here at the end of 11. He's barren. The first time in the whole book of Genesis that we're told about barrenness, God's blessing is always reflected in multiplying of children. And now for the first time, we have a guy who can't have children. What does that mean? How is his blessing going to go forth? Well, come back next spring, we'll show it. Um, But my point is, God's, God's plan of redemption is glorious. It might be slower than we want. It might be more confusing than, the, than, than we would want. But he is working a glorious plan of redemption for us. The snake crusher will come forth. And we know, we get to stand on the other side of it, guys. We get to know that it is Christ, that God was unfolding a generational plan that would take centuries and millennia to unfold, but eventually he would come, he would fulfill every promise, he would provide perfect redemption for his people. Here in Genesis 11, many languages are given, and and no one can understand each other as the the spread of sin is just unfolding. But after Christ, when you looked at Acts chapter 2, it's undone. You know, you get the day of Pentecost, and many languages are spoken, and they can all understand each other. It's like God undoing what happened at Babel as the the curse of sin is undone by the glory of Christ. So Genesis matters, family. Adam and Eve matter. Cain and Abel matter. Noah, Shem, Nimrod, Babel, Abram, all these people matter because Jesus matters. God's unfolding something really glorious. This is why we have to know our Old Testament, why we have to study these things so that we can see the beauty of Christ all the more. God is unfolding a glorious plan of redemption, and here as Genesis 11 concludes, he's not done. He's just getting started. We'll see it unfold more in the months ahead. Let me, let me pray for us. We're all done. God, we love you so much. We thank you for the careful and methodical and perfect way that you've unfolded redemption for us, Lord. We do not stand and, and gaze on Jesus as someone who just showed up in the dark of night with a, with a surprising plan of redemption. It was a perfect plan that was fulfilled after generations of, of uh, your glimmers of hope being given. And, and uh, I stand confident in that, Lord. It's a great apologetic to the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel that we have. And I just pray for the men in this room. I pray that we would um, stand under that in, in great confidence. We would uh, worship you and live thankful lives to you as a result of that. Lord, you've given us dominion, and we're meant to express that for you. But even where we fail, Lord, you have a great Redeemer who covers us. So would we stand under the blood of Jesus as we strive to use our dominion in healthy ways for your glory. Lord, lead us out. Uh, protect us as we go through this season of break and bring us back for more in the spring. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. We'll see you in February.
Well, brothers, as promised, I wanted to circle back up here and conclude our um, our semester of Men of the Word with our theme overview for week 10. Um, look, looking over Genesis 10 and 11, where do we see our major themes we've been tracking? Um, first up, blessing. <clears throat> as we've talked about from, from day one in this book, blessing seems to be the central theme of the book of Genesis as God uh, establishes the, the cosmos creates world, creates mankind. He blesses what he's made. And um, that blessing includes multiplication and, and um, uh, enjoyment of creation. And I think we absolutely see that once again here in chapter 10 and 11, specifically in the um, multiplication present in the genealogy lists. So, you know, very clearly there's great progeny going forth from the line of Noah uh, his three sons, uh, Ham, Japheth, and uh, Shem, they're, they're all having a lot of children. All of chapter 10 is chronicling the, the lineage of each of these three sons and all the, the nations, the clans, the languages that spread out from them. They really are fulfilling the, the mandate, as we talked about today, that fulfilling the mandate to fill the earth um, with, their, with their presence. And uh, all of that is reflective in the blessing of God, this ability to multiply and and have children is a part of God's blessing. I also think in it, we're, we're left with that curious uh, situation regarding Abram and Sarai there at the end of chapter 11 in the fact that they're barren. This is the first time barrenness is mentioned. It's almost like a brokenness of that blessing, um, which we're going to come to find out that, that God intends to bless them in a very unique way um, in part two of this study, but, but there, once again, you're sort of getting that, um, the glimpse of God's blessing through procreation and through the advancement of our lineage in our, in our children and their children. Um, second theme, sin and judgment, uh, so clear (laughs) once again, this has probably been the theme that's been easiest to see, um, because once again, mankind is falling into sin, uh, clearly in this, this part of scripture with the, the Tower of Babel incident, you know, mankind resolves to glorify themselves with the construction of the city and the tower to make their name great rather than God's. God pours out judgment on them in the form of um, this diversity of language that results in them having to, to spread apart because of the confusion that they have. So um, without a doubt, sin is playing out. Judgment is continuing. God is, um, is showing that judgment upon sin. Uh, third theme, grace. <clears throat> totally see it. In this passage, um, really, I, I see it most in the giving of the, the languages, the gracious hand of God to restrain the impact of sin that it could have. You know, the, the reason why God creates confusion and creates this disunity among the people is that he sees what might be achieved if they remain unified. That if, you know, even today, if we had one language, one, you know, global society, one global government even, the the ability of sin to um, pervade our world, pervade creation, pervade our hearts would be all the more increased that our unity uh, mixed with our depravity is a really bad thing. So God in grace has created diversity. He's created diversity of language. He's created diversity of nationalities as a reflection of his protective grace on mankind to keep us from going too far into sin. So just just an interesting glimpse there. I, I think this, you know, by implication leads us to, to have the understanding that there probably should never be a one world government, that that would be an unholy thing um, and an unhealthy thing in its expressions. It would probably result in a lot of 
um, a lot of sinfulness that would dishonor God, um, that, that we should, you know, respect God's grace in giving this, uh, this, these nationalities, these divisions as a, as a means of protect, protection for us. Um, leads us to our fourth, fourth theme, of course, covenant. <clears throat> and again, this one in part one of this study is a little diminished. It's not as clear as all the other ones, but it's going to take center stage as we move into part two in the spring. Um, but we do catch a glimpse of it, another glimpse here in, in chapters 10 and 11, mainly um, here in this story of Abram that, that begins to be told. Abram is going to be the centerpiece of God's covenantal blessing uh, in Genesis part two. And what we're, what we're seeing in chapter 11 is basically Moses offering us the, the lineage, the line from Shem all the way to Abram. So we're, we're getting preamble to that covenant blessing that is coming. Um, and I think even we talked about this during the teaching time this morning as we gathered, but I think um, the, the question remains as, as these three sons show up, three sons of Terah, Abram, Nahor, and Haran at the end of chapter 11, we are left with the question of which one is going to be the covenant child, which one is going to get the blessing, simply because of chapter 5 and the way that after 10 generations you get Noah, and he has three sons, and, and we're, we're told through the story that, that Shem is the one that the blessing falls upon. So we're sort of left with the question of where's the covenant going, where's the blessing falling, uh, as chapter 11 concludes. But in that, it is, it is pointing us ahead to the covenant that's coming um, mainly the covenant of grace given to, to Abraham in chapter 12. So uh, stay tuned for that. We'll study it when we kick things back off in uh, February for Genesis part two. But um, just want to commend you if you've somehow listened this far, um, man, want to commend you for your faithfulness and your diligence in studying Genesis with us this fall. And uh, I pray that it's been fruitful. And I hope to see you back with us in February as we continue our journey through this incredible book.